Hello, and welcome to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. Today we're going to close the books on the 19-teens, and we'll have finished telling the story of our first decade. Of course, it's a bit silly, because we started in 1917, but I'm still so excited to finish the teens and to try and set the stage for what's next, the 1920s and the jazz age. So today, we'll take a look at some of what the rest of the jazz world was up to in 1919. Before we start, though, a reminder that you can follow along with the show on Twitter at JazzHistoryPod, or check out the website at ahistoryofjazz.com. As always, I've included a link to the show's Spotify playlist so you can listen to more of the music from every episode. If you like the show, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at DanielTiger. And now, on with the show. Let's start this time by talking a little bit about what was going on in general in the world in 1919. UCLA was opened, although it was originally called Southern Branch of the University of California, or the not-quite-as-catchy acronym SBUC. The Stanley Cup finals were halted after five games due to the ongoing flu pandemic that we discussed last time. The League of Nations was founded. The 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, making alcohol legal, was ratified and worked out great. The 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote in the USA, was finally approved by Congress. The party that would later become the Nazis was founded in Germany, and Benito Mussolini started his Italian fascism movement. The Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I and set the world on the path to World War II, was signed. We'll start this episode with a band I briefly mentioned in our 1918 retrospective, the Louisiana Five. They were an early European-American Dixieland-style jazz band, active from roughly 1917 to 1920, and they were one of the first groups to extensively record. Although they were called the Louisiana Five, they were actually formed in New York City. They did feature at least one New Orleans musician, though, in our old friend Alcide Nunez, who you might remember as the founding clarinetist of the original Dixieland Jazz Band. He's the one who clashed with band leader Nick LaRocca and was eventually traded to Tom Brown's band for Larry Shields. Later on, he was the one who was sued by the band for publishing the sheet music to Livery Stable Blues, with himself as the author. Perhaps the most notable thing about the Louisiana Five is that they didn't have a cornet player. The five members played clarinet, piano, trombone, banjo, and drums. It's an unusual formation in an era where most of the European-American bands followed Tom Brown's predictable cornet, clarinet, trombone, piano, and drums formula. They were popular in New York, recorded for Emerson, Columbia, and Edison, and toured Texas and Oklahoma. Here now, the Louisiana Five with Down Where the Rajas Dwell. Next up this time 
is a man named Murray Pilser, who was a European-American band leader born Philip Morris Pilser in New York in 1884. In January of 1919, his band, under the incredibly clever title of Murray Pilser and His Jazz Band, recorded for the English Edison Bell label. It was the first British-made record by a group claiming to be a jazz band, and it was also recorded four months before the original Dixieland Jazz Band first arrived in England. It was very hard to find any solid information about Pilser, but I do know that he toured in more of Europe than just England and led the first jazz band a young Edward C. Cromelin heard in Knocka, Belgium, which led to Cromelin opening the first jazz society in his home country of the Netherlands. Pilser's brother Harry was a famous dancer who was a fellow student of Fred Astaire, and with his perhaps wife, the record is a bit unclear, French star Gabby Deslis, formed a dance team that was a contemporary of Vernon and Irene Castle. The only other thing I was able to find out about Murray Pilser was that he also apparently once played for 12 hours straight with another band he had in the mid-30s. So here now, Murray Pilser and his jazz band with That Moaning Trombone. The next artist this time is a man named Harry A. Yerkes. Now, Harry Yerkes was an inventor, a recording manager, and a marimba player who made a ton of records and was one of the top-selling artists of both 1919 and 1921, and today he's almost completely forgotten. He began his career in 1906 playing the xylophone, but then switched to running a company he had founded called the Yerkes Sound Effects Company, which made a pneumatic system to play chimes. Apparently it was installed in the Woolworth building at one point. By 1919, he had become an executive at Columbia Records, seems like he was more or less an early A&R man, and then an assistant to the vice president. He was a producer at Columbia when W.C. Handy, Wilbur Sweatman, James P. Johnson, and Bessie Smith were all making records there. And he also brought Ted Lewis to Columbia, a musician we'll hear more of in the future. From 1917 until 1924, he fronted many bands, while not always actually playing in them. Some of these included the Yerkes Novelty Five, Harry A. Yerkes Dance Orchestra, the Columbia Saxophone Sextet, Yerkes SS Flotilla Orchestra, Yerkes Jazzarimba Orchestra, and the group he was the most successful with, the Happy Six. The Happy Six made almost 100 records for Columbia in roughly a three-year period. Yerkes resigned from Columbia in 1925 and briefly had his own record label called Yerkes Dance Records. Here now, the Happy Six with Caravan. Thank you. 
last saw Wilbur Sweatman at the end of 1918, he was recording for Columbia Records. 1919 was the middle of Sweatman's peak, and his records were selling incredibly well. He was also playing a lot of concerts around New York, especially so-called Sunday concerts, which were held at theaters and were designed to circumvent New York's blue laws, which made theatrical entertainment on Sundays illegal. Those sort of laws always seem to be completely Byzantine to me, but I have no idea why concerts would meet the requirement when theatrical entertainment wouldn't. One of these Sunday concerts in April 1919 billed Sweatman's group as the largest jazz band ever assembled. The pianist for this show was a man named Dan Parrish, who regularly played with Sweatman. A month later, though, he joined Louis Mitchell's Jazz Kings, who I mentioned during the last episode, and went with Mitchell to Paris, helping to bring jazz to France. Around the same time, a musician we last heard about in our first episode, Freddie Keppard of the original Creole Orchestra, played with Sweatman, but sadly none of that work was recorded. Supposedly, Keppard was, at this point, hiring himself out as a sort of New Orleans consultant, helping bands to liven up their sound and learn to play the new, the new style that was so popular. One of Sweatman's biggest hits of 1919 was issued with a track from the same Louisiana Five we discussed earlier. The song, Slide Kelly Slide, was reviewed by the theatrical trade press as Wilbur Sweatman, the jazz artist who records for Columbia, has made a wonderful success with his latest recording, Slide Kelly Slide. It is a novelty trombone one-step and is full of pep and everything that keeps the feet a-jazzin'. Triangle Music Publishing Co. has issued orchestrations of the number. While the records that Sweatman made in 1918 sound a lot like the original Dixieland Jazz Band, a style many other bands were also trying to imitate, 1919 was a little bit different. Instead, he sounds more like the large syncopated orchestras of Ford Dabney, James Reese Europe, and Will Marion Cook. Now, this is because with the end of the war, all the musicians who were in the army were suddenly available for hire. And additionally, those bands were now wildly popular with the public so it made sense commercially to play more like them. Here now, from 1919, is Wilbur Sweatman with That's Got Em. Next, let's talk about a band sometimes called the Scrap Iron Jazz Band and sometimes called L'Orchestra Scrap Iron Jazzerinos. I know very little about this group, but I want to mention them for a couple of reasons. For one thing, their name is awesome. It's one of my favorites of the early jazz-era goofiness, right along with those Harry Yerkes groups I mentioned earlier. Scrap Iron was a seven-piece subset of the European-American Regimental 332nd Infantry Band, who were stationed in France during World War I. The group consisted of American doughboys, or infantrymen, who served at the Base 21 Hospital of the Washington University School of Medicine in Rouen, France. The band was originally from St. Louis, and was formed from medical staff to boost morale. After the war ended, they continued to play around France and Belgium, as well as at the Versailles Peace Conference, 
They recorded for several labels in 1919 and stayed in Europe until at least 1921. So here now, the Scrap Iron Jazz Band or Locustra Scrap Iron Jazzarinos with It's 100 to 1, You're in Love. The Savoy Quartet is another group with very little available information, but I want to discuss them because they represent the closest thing to jazz that was released in the UK prior to the arrival of the original Dixieland Jazz Band. The group was made up of an unusual combination of drums, piano, and two banjo players. Two of the band members were American, and one, drummer Alec Williams, was African American. As the other three members were of European or European American descent, this is an early example of an at least partially integrated band. One of the two banjo players was legendary soloist Emil Grimshaw, who later started his own guitar and banjo company. While, as far as I can tell, the firm doesn't exist anymore, many of the instruments they made are still in circulation today. So here's what pre-original Dixieland jazz band Jazz Records sounded like in the UK. This is the Savoy Quartet with Tackin' Em Down. Our final artist this time is a man named Will Marion Cook, and he was one of the most respected African-American composers of the early 1900s. His career spanned from the beginnings of African-American musical theater all the way to the beginnings of jazz. Very little of his music is available today, so this will be mostly just his story, but we will get to hear one of his songs to close the episode. Will Marion Cook was born on January 27, 1869 in Washington, D.C., and from a young age he demonstrated musical talent and was sent to the Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Ohio, and then eventually to Berlin to learn from the great violinist Josef Joachim. He made his debut as a concert violinist in December of 1889. He was a month short of his 21st birthday. 
His reputation continued to grow, and he spent 1894 studying with famed Czech composer and performer Antonin Dvorak at New York's National Conservatory of Music. Just as his star was rising, though, he abruptly quit playing classical violin, as he was tired of constantly being referred to as the greatest Negro violinist. He wanted to be the greatest violinist, period. By the late 1890s, Cook was focusing on conducting and composing, and he began to be part of New York's theatrical crowd. Cook was, by all accounts, an argumentative fellow, and he eventually got into a heated disagreement with another young composer, a man named Bob Cole, over what direction African-American theater should take. Bob Cole wanted to mimic European-American entertainment, whereas Cook wanted to do something that was distinctively African-American. Eventually, they both created shows that tested their beliefs. Bob Cole's show was patterned after a European-American hit called A Trip to Chinatown, and had the odious name of A Trip to Coontown. It was a hit. Will Marion Cook's show was called Clorindy, or The Origin of the Cakewalk, and was also a huge success. One of the songs even became a hit, the also odiously named Dark Town is Out Tonight. The two shows are generally regarded as having created the genre of African-American musical comedy. During the early 1900s, Cook was a major figure in the African-American New York musical world. Over time, he began to move further and further away from songs designed to please a prejudiced European-American audience, and as part of that created the song we'll get to hear at the end, Swing Along, from a show called In Dahomey. In 1910, Cook was a reluctant participant in the historic Clef Club concert at Carnegie Hall that we discussed in the James Reese Europe episode. Cook had initially opposed the concert, arguing that the risk of failure was too great. He showed up at the last minute, however, to play his violin, but asked not to be singled out. But when the band played Swing Along, the reception was so enthusiastic, requiring three encores, that Cook was forced to take a bow. In fact, according to one eyewitness account, he began to weep tears of joy, and when he tried to speak, he couldn't say a word. All he could do was just bow. By January of 1919, musicals were on the decline, and instead Cook organized a group called the New York Syncopated Orchestra. The advertising called it by far the most meritorious effort put forth to place the musical art of the Negro truly American, distinctive, characteristic, sublime in the sphere in which it properly belongs. By June, the group was renamed the Southern Syncopated Orchestra and sailed to England to play what was supposed to be a six-month engagement. They ended up staying for three years and played mostly ragtime. They played at London's Philharmonic Hall and even had a command performance for King George V. Reviews at that time contrasted their musical literacy and varied repertoire with the wild music of another American group who were big in London at the same time, the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Cook's group, though, was full of tension, and at times there were even two competing versions touring England. By 1920, in fact, Cook was back in the USA, but the rest of the band stayed until 1922. Cook spent the rest of the 1920s doing his usual composing, conducting, and inspiring younger musicians. Duke Ellington, who we will of course have a lot more to say about in the future, called Cook Dad, and wrote in his autobiography, several times after I had played some tune I had written, but not really completed, I would say, now Dad, what's the logical way to develop this theme? What direction should I take? You know, you should go to the conservatory, he would answer, but since you won't, I'll tell you. First you find the logical way, and when you find it, avoid it, and let your inner self break through and guide you. Don't try to be anybody but yourself. Will Marion Cook died on July 19, 1944, at the age of 74, and although he didn't record much, we're lucky enough to finish this episode with perhaps his biggest hit, the aforementioned Swing Along. And with that, we'll close the books on the 19-teens, and I'll see you all next time for the 1920s. Here now, Will Marion Cook with Swing Along.